brings joy to my heart to see you all here this Sunday. It truly does. If I can just give you a personal update about my own life. Uh, last Sunday after service, I flew out to LAX, California, and started the first year of my, well, my studies have already begun technically, but started my first cohort, on-campus cohort at uh, Fuller Seminary towards my doctorate of ministry. And uh, that cohort is going on right now and continuing until next Wednesday. Now, you're wondering what I'm doing here with you. Uh, when Hurricane Harvey hit, I had a conversation with my leadership team and my staff, as well as my, the director of my cohort, Mark Roberts, out in California. And uh, our community had gone through, you know, we had, been, we had people that were hit by the hurricane and, uh, and people who suffered a great deal. And our, our church actual location, we were displaced for three weeks. And a lot of transition happens. A lot of craziness happens. Um, and even for us as a church, as a community, we, we, go through some, we go through some transition. And so in the midst of all of that, I was discerning and wondering if I should even put off my first year of study. And I was thinking maybe I should just hold off and not, 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 not do school for this first year. Um, the LT and the staff and, and uh, as well as my, my doctoral advisor suggested that's probably overkill and not necessary. Um, but the team did convey that it would be good if I was here this Sunday. It would be good if I was here. So it's not like Pastor Wayne doesn't know how to take a Sunday off. He flies all the way here. Um, but I, I did get the sense that I needed to be here. We were still close to ground zero. And everybody agreed about that, including um, my director at Fuller. And so what they did was they found funding. Mark Roberts found funding from the Dupree Center and uh, were able to pay for my ticket to come back this weekend. Um, I leave again tonight to go back to Pasadena to finish off my classes Monday to Wednesday. Um, but they found funding for me to fly back and also um, to take care of my room and board. That was something that in the midst of the hurricane that I was not able to arrange. And they took, they took care of that as well. And so I just want to convey to you um, the indebtedness and the gratitude that I feel and also the way that Fuller has blessed us as a community. And so for, for me personally, I, I, you know, again, it's not like I can't take a Sunday off um, but it was just this feeling that I, I needed to be here, so close to the event. I needed to be here. There's a story uh, about a priest who um, left his mission outpost because they were threatening his life. This is a true story. <laughs> it's not like there's any threatening of my life going on or anything like that, but he decided to go back. Um, this, is, this is Father Stanley Rowther from Oklahoma City, and he went back to Guatemala because he said, a shepherd cannot run from his flock. A shepherd cannot run from his flock. So I just hope you can hear the pastor's heart. In the pastor's heart, a shepherd cannot run from his flock. And that's why I'm here with you today. And that's why um, it is just out of love and also this strong sense of duty as well. Um, we want to continue our series today through the book of Ephesians. And this series through the book of Ephesians, I've talked about how uh, this letter 
scholars believe that it was an encyclical letter, which means it was cycled through different churches around the world, and I believe across time as well. I believe that this is a, a message that speaks to us very personally, very, very personally. And so we're calling this series Dear Woven. That's the hashtag, Dear Woven, a study through the New Testament book of Ephesians. And last Sunday, last Sunday we read this prayer from chapter 1, verse 18. And if indeed this is a letter written not just to the church in Ephesus, but to all churches around the world, across the world, across time, hear this prayer, a very pastoral prayer. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart, woven, I pray that woven the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know this hope that you've been called, the riches of his, of his glorious inheritance, and the incomparably great power for you, woven, the great power for you who believe. Now, this power that I'm talking about, it's the same power that he exerted when God raised Christ from the dead. In other words, the power that raised Christ from the dead and ascended him, that's the same power that's in you, woven. And so hear these pastoral words. And today we pick up from there, from that prayer that Paul is saying, this power, it lives in us. This power that God raised Christ from the dead, that same power is what is within us. Today, we're going to pick up from there as I talk along three headings, the first of which is the walking dead. And I'll make our way, I'll, t I'll tell you what those three headings are along the way. Because you can see, after this tremendous prayer, I pray that you would be in touch with the power. I pray that you will know this, this power that lives within you. But then he changes the beat. He changes the tune. And in, in chapter 2, verse 1, look at what it says. It says, and you. And today we're reading from the NIV. Are we? No, I'm sorry. We're reading the NASB, right? It says, and you. And you were dead in your sins and trespasses. So after talking about all of this power that lives within us, Paul says, but hang on, as for you, as for you, this is who you were. Formerly, this is who you were. And uh, my wife and I, for a long stretch, we were watching The Walking Dead, uh, the series. Um, we're a little bit behind. We missed the entire last season. So if anybody has that... Um, uh, on, uh, uh, you know, on file, um, we'd love to do some catching up. But when we were watching The Walking Dead, we always had to tell our kids, it's time for bed. Um, and they're like, why? We want to see what you're watching. And we said, you can't come out. You can't even sneak out and look over our shoulders and see what we're watching. This show is really scary. And they said, why? What is it called? He says, it's The Walking Dead. And, um, and they said, wow, that sounds scary. And my little daughter... Um, uh, you know, because The Walking Dead goes back, what, like five years. So she was really young, and she said, uh, oh, are you watching Walk and Dead again? Walk and Dead. And we always found that really humorous, Walk and Dead. The thing is, in these verses, when it talks about, as for you, you were dead, uh, the language there, it talks about a state of being. You were in this state of being dead. The Greek, uh, in the Greek there, it, it's not just saying you know, you were metaphorically dead. I think Paul is talking about being an actual walk and dead state. 
Now, nobody, when you're dead, you, you, don't, you're, you don't dead and walk at the same time. But I think what Paul is talking about here is that very thing. There's this almost real, uh, beyond just metaphor, I think he's talking about a very real state where we were dead and walk. You were walk and dead. You were in this state. Now, you're, you might say, well, how can you say that I'm walk and dead? Um, last I checked, there's blood flowing through my veins. Um, the doctor said that, you know, everything's working just fine. And he says, no, no, you were dead. You were walk and dead in your trespasses and in your sins. In your trespasses and in your sins. And just, friends, think about that for a moment. I was dead in my sins. Now, you might think, I live in the suburbs of Houston. I'm a morally upright person. I, I, don't, I don't do illegal things. I don't have a record. How was I dead? How am I dead in my sins? But in any honest moment, when you just shut your eyes and you think back to those crazy times where you were hungover from whatever your acting out behavior was, whether it was cutting loose or letting yourself go or watching that thing or consuming this substance or even giving something or somebody a piece of your mind and the hangover that you feel afterwards. And when we think about that, I don't think there's anybody in this room that doesn't know what it's like to be hungover. And you know what I mean. I don't mean that just from, one, from, from alcohol per se. I don't think there's anybody in this room that can say that I haven't been touched by sin, that there is, that there is within me a deep brokenness. You know, um, my pastor, Garth Bolander, superintendent of the Mid-South Conference of the ECC, he likes this word trespasses. Sometimes when we close a meeting and we close with the Lord's Prayer, you get to that part where it says, and forgive us our sins. Now, depending on who you're with, sometimes they'll say, forgive us our sins. Sometimes they'll say, forgive us our trespasses. And he likes the word trespasses because there's something about that where you've crossed the line. This time you've gone too far. This time I've gone too far. It's one thing to sin. It's another thing to say, I've gone too far. I've trespassed. I've done what even I said I wouldn't do. I said I would not go that far. Even I've crossed my own boundaries. Or, you know, we live in 2017. We're all about boundaries, right? Anybody that's done a little bit of mental health, we're all about boundaries. Well, you're crossing my boundaries, you're crossing my boundaries, but then we've crossed someone else's boundaries. And so this trespasses, there's even a relational aspect to it. We trespass against each other. So what he's saying is this, this is all the, we were walk and dead because of all the boundaries we've crossed, because of all the hangovers we've experienced, because of all of this uh, acting out in our lives. This is, this is the walk and dead but then Paul clarifies, he says in verse 2, formerly, in which you formerly walked. This is who you were formerly. So be encouraged. This is who we were formerly, right? Hopefully as we grow as Christians, we can look back and say, that's who I was formerly. 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 That word formerly is going to appear again and again all throughout chapter 2. All throughout chapter 2, Paul is not telling them you're sinners, you're evil. He's saying this is who you formerly, 
formerly were, and not only who you formerly were, this is how you formerly walked, is what it says. This is how you formerly walked. And the Greek there, peripateo, talks about walking around. This is how you walked around in life. If this is your world, you conducted yourself in this way, acting out, hungover, crazy. Um, This is how you formerly walked. And that's important because that word walk is going to come up again at the end. And you walked according to all of this craziness, the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. You walked according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So we were acting out just like the rest of the world, and he calls the rest of the world the sons of disobedience. So since we're talking about sitcom television, there's another one, The Sons of Anarchy on FX. Has anybody ever watched that show? I've never watched it, but I know it's there. Apparently, it's about a biker gang uh, that's trying to find redemption or something like that. But the point being, we were all sons and daughters of anarchy. We were all in the biker gang. We were all formerly part of that crew. And you see that, look at verse 3. Again, among them, the sons of anarchy, we also all formerly lived. So there's that word again, formerly. This is who you were formerly. Now, hang with me just a little bit more because we're still not out of that first heading, walking dead. We're still not out of that first heading because here Paul gets a little bit deeper uh, expositing what this means. So, formerly we also lived among the walking dead and we lived according to the lusts of our flesh. And just to do a little bit of exposition on this, we don't have to just talk about the sexual aspect of lust. Although I'm sure that's present there. But lust is this thing that you you can have a lust for power. You can have a lust for potato chips. You can have a lust basically for anything. It's this inordinate appetite. It's this craving that I think is rooted in a dissatisfaction with God. Now look at life is about a series of discomforts. And then we feel like I've got all my ducks in a row, everything is working, I'm comfortable, I'm happy. But whenever life gets uncomfortable, where something steps out of line or uh, something is not perfectly lined up the way I want it to be, what do you do to comfort yourself? It's Miller time, that's what I do. What I, need, what I really need to do is just veg out and watch an entire season on Netflix. That's what I need to do. Or what I need to do is just eat until I feel good. Or what I need to do is just give somebody a piece of my mind. Well, what do you do? What is that thing that you turn towards? When we talk about lust, essentially what it is, it's an inability to be comfortable with the discomfort. It's an inability to find comfort in the discomfort of life. And so what we do is we turn to these secondary substances, behaviors, and things so that we can somehow find comfort. That, I believe, is the root of lust. The root of lust is when we don't know how to cope with life 
And we use things to cope. And we can't get enough of whatever that thing is. And what Paul says is we were, in a sense, beholden. He doesn't say this, but I would almost believe that what he's onto is we were addicted to these things, to the lusts of our flesh. Because after that, he says, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, that word indulging, literally in the Greek, it just says doing. In other words, we just did The minute the temptation came up, we just did it. And that word doing, I think it could be translated indulging because what's being conveyed here is there was no fight. We're doing exactly, exactly what we want to do at that moment, and it's act out. So we do exactly the lusts of the flesh, whatever it is, whatever whatever we want. I can tell you a story, a contemporary story about this. It's fictional, but I'm sure it's somewhere happening in the world. There's a man in rehab. There's a man in rehab, uh, and he's in rehab for, let's say, it's narcotics, narcotics. And he's in rehab, and, you know, he's just so irritable because he's uncomfortable. He doesn't like the fact that he has to put his life on hold, and he doesn't like the fact that he has to sit and talk to this therapist. And he's like, man, woman, you know, whoever the therapist is, why do I have to go through all this? Why do I have to give up this? Why do I have to wear this thing around my ankle? Why do I have to kind of, you know, go cold turkey on all things? Why do I have to give up cigarettes? Why do I have to, why do I have to go through all this and give up this and do that and that? Just what about my rights and what about my freedom? And the therapist, she says, what rights? What freedom? You have no rights and you have no freedom left. Ever since you gave yourself over to these narcotics, you basically gave up all of your freedom one by one. Willingly, you gave yourself to exactly what you wanted. You have no rights. You see, this is an argument that goes back 500 years. I mean that literally, 500 years ago. I say that because 500 years ago, 2017 is the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. 500 years And 500 years ago, there was a conflict going on in the church. Protestants wanted to break away from the Catholic church, and a man named Erasmus, who was a Catholic, he said, no, 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 all of you Protestants are wrong. Your notion of free will, you're talking about about how God is sovereign and God has preordained everything. We have a free will. And so Erasmus, just follow with me, listen. Erasmus writes this book called On Free Will. We have a free will. And we have to exercise our free will to receive repentance and to exercise our free will in order to receive baptism and conversion. In response to that, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther writes a book, a counter-argument to Erasmus' On Free Will. Luther's book is called On the Bondage of the Will. Luther's argument is basically the very same as the therapist's argument. In other words, what free will that, man, that offends my sensibilities. I have a free will. I can do what I want. Really? You can do what you want? You can choose the good consistently? Yeah, I can. I have a spy cam that followed you. <laughs> what free will? When it came to sin, when it came to the lusts of the flesh, look, whatever those things are, we did exactly that very thing. We indulged it. We did. 
Now, you might say, as a Christian, I've been a Christian for this many years, and I'm getting better and better. You certainly are. But there is a time in our lives when we can look back and say, there was no holding back. You know, it's like you're a child. Bright colored lights. <laughs> you know, shiny things. There is no will. That's at least what Luther would say. There was no free will. Because whatever will we had, our volition, our ability to choose and decide was impaired. It was fundamentally broken by the fall. And therefore, whatever shiny lights or bright, shiny things, bright colors that we wanted to follow, we went after it wholesale. This is the human condition. This is the human condition. Now, you might protest and say, I have a will. And to that, well, I'm sure Paul, I'm sure Paul offers a, a pretty decent argument that I don't know about that. Sounds like, sounds like we want to exert our free will, but really that we, we just ended up doing all of those lusts of our flesh, indulging the very thing we wanted. You see, I've said this before, friends. But we are, creatures, uh, we are creatures of desire. We will always get the strongest thing that we want. And if the strongest thing that you want right now is potato chips, you'll get potato chips. Wild horses can't keep you from potato chips. We are creatures of desire. And for a good time, a, a good portion of our lives, before we knew Christ, formerly... What we wanted was potato chips, so to speak. We indulged, we indulged. But now we transition into the second heading. So Paul lays out this thing, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean that to be depressing. But from the walking dead, we become the waking up. And that's the second heading as we continue in verse 4. From the walking dead, we transition into those who are waking up, waking up. It's a, that's, a, that's a saying these days, to be woke. But how many of you are feeling like you're spiritually waking up? Listen to these words in verse 4. God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even while we were in that walk and dead state, God made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive with Christ he raised us up. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And so, let's talk through this briefly. God being rich in mercy. And in His kindness and His mercy, it says even while we were in, even, even when we were dead, once again, this is that walk and dead state. And I really think Paul for him, this is more than metaphorical. I think Paul really, really believes this, that, that in a sense we were the walking dead. Even when we were the walking dead, God made us alive. Now, think about this. What came first, the chicken or the egg? In this passage, what came first? You getting your life together or the grace of God appearing? Reflect on that, friends. What came first? According to this passage, 
even while we were still the walking dead, mercy came. It did not come for, uh, or our changing our lives or our getting our act together did not come first. The grace of God came even while we were in this walking dead state. It preempted, it preempted any change on our part. It preempted any change. And so the grace of God appears. It makes us alive together with Christ. And there's a few things here, uh, three phrases that if even in your bulletin, underline it. I want to draw your attention. Because what's being said here uh, is it's, it's, it's present in the original language. It's hard, to, it's hard to, to grasp in the English. But three phrases. Number one is made us alive. And secondly is raised us up. And third, seated us with him. Made us alive, raised us up, and seated us. This is God uh, doing something for us, making us alive, raising and seating us. But what's neat and what's neat about this is that each of those three ideas, making us alive, raising us up, and seating us, each of those three in the Greek is prefixed with the word with, soon. This is not God just doing this for us, making us alive, raising us up, seating. He did it with. And that word with is present in every single one of those. It's there with Christ, with Christ, with Christ. God made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ. So if you're wondering and you're sitting around as a Christian and you're wondering, when is the lightning going to zap me? When am I going to be different? When am I going to change? What does this insinuate? That He has raised us up with Christ, made us alive with Christ, and seated us. What does this mean? What this, mean, what this means is that God has already done it. Did Christ resurrect? Yes. And when Christ resurrected and ascended, what Paul is saying is that God did the same for us. So you see, I don't think Paul is just talking about a metaphor here. I think he's talking, I think he's talking about a very real sense that we are resurrected, that we're new people, that we're made alive because Christ resurrected, Christ was made alive, and Christ was seated together with Christ, together with, with, with Three times. Maybe, not, don't just underline made us alive and raised us up and seated, but actually underline and circle with. Because that word with is the key. With is the key. So in conclusion, at least for the second heading, what are we talking about? We're talking about the new life that we have in Christ. What we're talking about here is the changed life changed humanity, the different person. Now reflect. Reflect. How am I raised up? How am I made alive? And Paul clarifies as I conclude this second heading, for by grace you've been saved through faith. For by grace you've been saved. Let me just Say one last thing about that phrase, by grace you've been saved. That word saved, that word saved 
intense, it's a perfect and a passive. And what that means is two things. Number one, it's a passive. It's a passive tense. It's not an active tense. If we translated this as an active, in an active tense, it would have said, by grace, you are saving yourself. You are actively being, you are actively doing your own saving. This is passive. What it's conveying is a sense that we cannot save ourselves. We are being saved. So we were or we received salvation. But it's also a perfect tense. And what this means, if I can just articulate, saved in its perfect tense, have been saved is how we might translate that. What's being said here is this is something that was that that was enacted, it happened, but a perfect tense has effects ongoing into the future. It has repercussion effects. A perfect passive tense is something that has happened in the past definitively, clearly. Anybody who doubts your salvation, you're doubting yourself. But you know why you don't have to doubt your salvation? Because you've put your faith not in your own ability to save. You've put your faith in Christ. So doubting your salvation, I, I, I'm, doubting your salvation is not a matter of what you can actively enact. It's a matter of just saying Christ died and resurrected. And therefore, I too died and resurrected because I believe He did so. You've put your faith in Him. So it's passive, but it's also perfect in the sense that it was enacted in the past, but it has ongoing repercussions into the future. So friends, how different are you from that day when you accepted Christ? How are you changing? How are you becoming? That's the question. You have been saved in the sense you are also continually being saved. Or your salvation is working itself out into the future. So we started off, Paul started off talking about the walking dead. And then he talks about waking up, the waking up. Now he concludes with what it means to look and live like a Christian with this third and last heading, walking right. Walking right. How we go from the walking dead, the walk and dead, to those who are waking up, waking up, and now to those who are walking right. And he concludes in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk. There's that word again, walk in them. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, God created us for good works, he transformed us. We've, we've, we've been saved. Therefore, we walk in a different way. Before, we walked according to the, the patterns of the world, indulging, doing the very thing we want. Now we walk in a countercultural way. You see this? I'm reversing. We walk in a countercultural way. And that word walk, it has a Hebrew worldview behind it, of, uh, uh, the Hebrew word halak, which means to walk, to live a certain way. We walk differently now. And I've used this illustration, um, and I'm going to tell it again, um, because it seems like those people who were here for that Sunday are all not here, a different crowd, but just to share that illustration, which is, uh, I thought about it, and it was, to me, a very humorous illustration. 
Um, and it's the story about my son um, doing martial arts. And when you do martial arts, especially when you uh, spar and, and when you wear the, the competition gear and the sparring, you know, uh, you, you're on the floor, you have to take a position and you get ready to fight and you give good kicks, you take some good kicks and every now and then you just get tired. It's kind of like life. It's a metaphor for life. As much as you give good kicks, sometimes you just take a lot of kicks. And then one day, my son was approached uh, by the instructor and invited to try out for the competition team. And um, he actually made it. He actually made it. So he tried out, and he's on the competition team. And I've noticed something about his walking that is different ever since he made the competition team. There's a sense of confidence, whereas before he was tired. He was like, I don't want to get into the ring anymore. I don't want to step into the ring of life. Why? Because when you step into the ring of life, what happens? You get kicked every now and then. You get kicked in the ring of life, and you can't avoid it. Childhood eventually ends. All of us grow up, and in life, we take kicks. But what was different about this, once my son was called, elect, chosen even, I noticed that he started walking onto the mat with his chest held up a little bit higher. He carried himself a little bit differently. He walked differently. He walked around the mat like I was chosen. He walks around the mat counter to the way he walked before. He might have walked before when he was beaten up every now and then, and every kid gets beaten up. All right, but you know, beaten up by life, just shoulders, shag- shoulders sagging a little bit and walking around life like this. But friends, when we realize that it is by grace that we have been saved, that we are called, elect, chosen, that you actually are God's quote-unquote favorite, favorite, favoritized. You walk differently and you get on the mat and your shoulders are a little bit broader, and you're starting to do this, and, you know, you're starting to go, you know, you're getting on the floor, and you're feeling the confidence, and you're ready to get back into the ring and face life because you have this profound sense that you were chosen, you were called. Friends, I think Luther is right. Prior, we had very little free will, if any. We were given towards life. We were given to the indulgences and to the lusts of our own flesh. We did all those things. And what did it do? Did it give you, did it make, did it give you what you wanted? I just downed that whole bag of potato chips. I feel great. I just gave that guy on the road a piece of my mind. I feel good today. I fired somebody in a fit of rage. Look in the mirror and I feel great. Or I just spent 10 hours binge-watching something that I shouldn't have been or watching a Netflix series. Does anybody ever feel good after binge-watching a TV series? I never really feel good. I'm trying to pick up where I'm leaving off from here. But the thing is, we walk differently now. And we walk in a way, saved by grace, 
where there's true satisfaction. I believe, I really believe it. I, I, I am walking proof, I think, if I can only testify to myself, that living according to the peace of Christ is such a better, more sober, uh, clean way of living. You feel clean. You feel clean. We can face discomfort without having to drug we can face discomfort without having to resort. Why? Because the power of Christ, as we sang, now lives within me. I have experienced grace. I'm able to walk into the ring of life like this, you know, ready, ready to spar. This is not self-motivation talk, friends, because if this was self-motivation talk, tomorrow morning you'll wake up. I will, I will arrive in LAX at 3 in the morning tonight, tomorrow, tomorrow, mor- tomorrow morning feeling miserable, show up in my classes. What is it that gets us out of bed every morning? It is the mighty strength of Christ. I, I, that's not a cliche. The grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God is what gives you breath, life, strength. It's what picks your chin up again at the end of the day. As I conclude, friends, what makes you walk right? What makes you walk right? It's when you've been beat up in the ring, you've given yourself over to every pleasurable thing and you feel the emptiness and you look in the mirror and you can see God lifting your chin up. You realize that His grace is upon you. That, that is what helps you to carry on. Let's close our eyes with this last thought. As you stand in front of a mirror, as you look at yourself, as you behold your own soul today, Can you see that you have been made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ? Can you see the former life? Do you feel your chin lifted up by God as one of the chosen, those who have been a recipient of grace? You know, I will say that grace is a one-time thing. We receive grace. Grace has come. But there are a million little graces that God gives us. A million little graces. The good things that happen to you are little graces. And the seemingly bad, even the seemingly bad, those are graces too. So we can look at life And we can accept and receive the good as well as the seemingly bad, all as a grace of God. And so, just with some kind of a physical act, you can even hold your hands open, just receiving God's grace, saying, I need your grace at this moment. I invite you at this time to just respond quietly with your own prayer and with your hands lifted up just to receive that grace. Let's pray for a minute or two.
So God, at this time, we recognize your graces that you have given to us. We recognize that we were able to wake up this morning and stand up from our beds. We recognize that we were fortunate to drive here, to come here to church. We recognize that we are free to worship. We recognize that we were protected from harm. There was so much horrible things that have happened in the last seven days in Las Vegas. We think about what's happened there. And we pray your mercy and your grace. In the good and in the seemingly bad, we're grateful, God, that you've carried us through the storm and that you've graced us with the means to get back up even after that. You've graced us with a livelihood, with the ability to work. You've graced us with breath today. You've graced us with beautiful children and loved ones. And you've graced us with each other. And so for all of these graces, thank you. Thank you. We would be amiss, terribly amiss to, not acknowledge, to, to fail to acknowledge them. So in recognitions of these graces, Lord, we bring our offering. We bring our gratitude to you at this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.